The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as Mormonism, is one of the fastest growing global religions. As of the latest reports, there are over 17 million members. And while it is still predominantly considered an American religion, almost half of those members live outside of the United States. This September marks the 200th anniversary of the church's founder Joseph Smith's first vision of the angel Moroni and the revelation of the gold plates that Smith would go on to translate and publish as the Book of Mormon, giving birth to a new religion. This is Jack Dugan with the Oxford Comment. On today's episode, we're joined by two preeminent scholars on the history and theology of the Latter-day Saints to discuss with us the legacy of Joseph Smith's gold plates, as well as the state of academic scholarship surrounding the Book of Mormon. Our first guest today is historian Richard Lyman Bushman. Richard is Professor Emeritus of History at Columbia University and both co-founder and chairman of the board of the Center for Latter-day Saints Arts. His previous books include Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling, and Mormonism, a very short introduction. His most recent book with Oxford is Joseph Smith's Gold Plates, A Cultural History, which traces the history of the gold plates over the last two centuries. Hello, Richard. Welcome to the Oxford Comment. Would you mind uh, introducing yourself in the book quickly? My name is uh, Richard Bushman. I am a historian taught at Columbia University. I've written a number of books on many subjects, but Recently, I've been doing work on uh, Latter-day Saint history, I wrote a biography of Joseph Smith, and now I've produced this book on Joseph Smith's gold plates. Wonderful. And this September marks the 200th anniversary of Joseph Smith's vision when the gold plates were first revealed to him. Could you take a moment and tell us the story and what it means for the history of Mormonism? Yes, uh, Joseph Smith uh, was uh, a son in a very poor farm family that migrated to New York from um, Vermont to Palmyra, New York on the Erie Canal in uh, 1816. And he had very intense religious feelings, uh, had a vision when he was young. And when he was 17 years old and praying, he tells us an angel appeared in his room and told him there was a record buried in a hill near his home. And he, the next morning he went and found the record in a stone box on the side of a hill about two miles away from his home. And after, wasn't allowed to take it out then, but after four years, he took it home, began to translate it. And after a year and a half, it, it was finished and he published it as a the Book of Mormon. And this is one of the founding stories of Mormonism. It's sort of like the deliverance of Israel through the Red Sea or uh, the, the resurrection of Christ for Christians. It's sort of one of the founding miracle stories that uh, gave Mormonism its impetus in its early years and down to today. Can you tell us a little bit more about Joseph Smith and the process of translating the Golden Plates? Well, Joseph Smith was, um, it's a mystery, I will say that. He was unlearned. He had a little bit of schooling, but didn't know Latin or Greek or any other language. Translation was in the air in those times because the Egyptian characters had been found in Champollion was working on them, but 
he was a genius. Joseph Smith was untrained and not thought of as a genius at all. But for some reason, he took on this task of translating um, the Book of Mormon. And he did it. He said he did it by the gift of God. He didn't explain how he did it. But he did have an instrument. He called them spectacles, the two crystal stones he looked into. And uh, somehow or other, the words came to him and he dictated them. And they were written down. And he did this in the, the total is about a period of 15 months. He worked maybe six or eight months on it, dictating day after day. Uh, finished in June of 1829, published in March of 1830 as the Book of Mormon. Even before the Book of Mormon was published, newspapers were reporting on the discovery of the Golden Bible, and many were critical of Joseph Smith's secretiveness. What was the early reception of the discovery? The first uh, response uh, outside of Joseph Smith's circle of friends was that is what they called an imposition. That is, someone uh, had devised a scheme to uh, deceive people and probably bilk them of money in some way or other. And Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon was put in a category with the Quran of religious fanatics who through the ages had prevailed upon people's uh, credulity in order to gain power and wealth. And uh, that was what was held over him for many, many years, that he was a, a charlatan who had just made this thing up. On the other hand, closer to him, around his family, they believed it quite readily. And he had a circle of friends who believed without any direct evidence, just he said he had these plates and they believed it and they sat down and happily wrote the script as he dictated it to them. It's quite remarkable to me that they did that. At the end, it, all the while, he, they couldn't look at the plates. They couldn't see them. At the end, he showed them to uh, 11 men who had a chance to look at them, and some of them touched the plates. But that was at the end. Up to that point, all the while he was translating, people believed. It's uh, quite remarkable. And then the plates disappeared. He said he returned them to the angel, so they weren't around to look at. And yet these people uh, were able to embrace the, him as a prophet and to believe in the plates and in the Book of Mormon. Has anyone tried to find the plates since Smith claims he returned them to the earth? The plates have intrigued Mormons. And they have taken various steps to attempt to recover them. There were, in the 1850s, there were stories told of a cave in the Hill Camorra that Joseph Smith had gone to, to contemplate, maybe to translate. And there was the feeling that perhaps when the plates were returned to the angel, they were concealed in that cave. And stories began to circulate of Joseph Smith and a friend of his, Oliver Cowdery, going into that cave and seeing stacks of plates. Book of Mormon thus doesn't have one set of plates, but there are passages in it that implies there are many more uh, sets of plates, and they were all in that 
cave. And I have known people, in fact, one of my own cousins, who hunted for that cave. Now, just as a lark, you know, they're not really taking it seriously. But still, there's enough evidence that you can poke around. And they found um, remnants of what could be a cave. But of course, no plates in them of, of any kind. But that's about the farthest uh, they have come. Um, there's a lot of scholarship on where the plot of the Book of Mormon went on. Was it in North America, in upstate New York? Is that where all the events recorded there went on? Or was it in Central America? So there are some people who think there were two Camorras, one in Central America where Moroni buried the plates, another in New York. And so the speculation um, <laughs> you know, just goes on endlessly. It's just too much fun to think about it. And you share with us some of the mythology and some of the critiques around the existence of the plates. That's a good question, because my whole book is really about mythologies. These plates are so anomalous, so unlike anything else that was uh, known in religious history, that there was always a struggle to, to locate them. How were they to be thought of? And down to our very own day, people use these plates for their own purposes. Um, many of your listeners will know uh, Tony Kushner's Angels in America, which was a Pulitzer Prize winning play in the 1990s. And it has at its, at its center a visit of an angel who gives to the, um, the hero of the play, a, man, a gay man named Pryor who was dying of AIDS, a set of plates and an instrument to translate them. So it's a direct borrowing of Joseph Smith. So he borrows that myth, that story, to make his own myth of a man who is suffering and wishes to protest. At the end, having received these plates, he gives them back, refuses the mission, reverse of what Joseph Smith does, and curses God for his mistreatment of uh, his, his children. So there's that myth. Um, there's the myth of James Rollin, who uh, wrote a book about the gold plates being a depository in Western American mountains containing the wisdom of Jewish migration from the old world before uh, the settlement of America. And they deposited these plates with advanced scientific knowledge. But anyone who intervened with those plates would bring about the destruction of the earth. So another kind of story. And there have been stories like that you know, from the beginning to sort of um, give a meaning or to use the uh, powers of the plates for one reason or another. In terms of criticism, uh, the big problem, of course, is to, to discover where Joseph Smith got the idea. And recently, there's been an article by a woman named Sonia Hazard, who is, teaches religious studies at Florida State University. And she, trying to explain where the idea came from, points out that there was a new print technology of stereotype plates made of metal with characters on them. And she thinks 
Now, Joseph Smith could have stumbled upon these in printer shops near his home and seen them and been inspired by them. And that mixed up with all the treasure-seeking lore that he is familiar with, he devised the idea of gold plates. So uh, that's a scholarly view, very deeply researched work of how it happened. Others use it in more of a mythological sense to accomplish the purposes of their, uh, their own, like Tony Kushner. How does the literal belief in the existence of the plates play into the faith of the Latter-day Saints? Is it possible for one to be faithful and question their existence? There is no sort of um, test of your faith in terms of specific items. So I think there are many Mormons who may sort of hold them in suspension. Maybe they existed, maybe they didn't. But I think most Mormons do because it is so built into these founding stories. So if you believe the Book of Mormon, where did the Book of Mormon come from? Well, you can say Joseph Smith made it up. That's very hard to believe. And he made, you know, this 24-year-old 24 kid with no education could write the Book of Mormon. So the Book of Mormon stands there as this big rock we have to explain. And there are the plates as a possible source so Mormons tend to accept the whole package. And uh, it's not debated in very much. Um, it just goes along with one of the strange things about our religion, which has many strange things in it, but we love them all. <laughs> so it's sort of a, a happy embrace of our, of our crazy parts. Wonderful, thank you. Um, and why do you believe these plates persist as objects of fascination? Well, it is quite remarkable uh, that they persist, considering that you know no one saw them, they're not available. I think partly they're intriguing. You know, a set of gold plates, stack of them, six inches high and maybe six by eight in their dimensions, having characters engraved on them, which tell the history of a lost civilization that brought about its own downfall through its wickedness. Um, that as a package is kind of alluring, you know, once you get a picture of those plates in your mind, it's, it's not gonna go away. And so people have picked it up um, just because it's in, intriguing. But I think really why they persist is that Mormons believe in them. It isn't just that there's this image, but you have this whole group of people who say, we believe they're real, and they did contain an ancient history. And that gives them a kind of a weight. You know, they have to be taken seriously because a million, many more than that, still believe that they, they were actually an, an, an actual object that Joseph Smith possessed. Of all of the elements of Latter-day Saint history, how did you personally decide to focus on the plates over the last two centuries? The idea of doing a book on the gold plates just sort of came to me out of the blue. It was around um, 2010. But it struck me as interesting because as, um, as an object, it was so luminous, so fraught with many meanings, and so audacious, I mean, so contrary 
to our sort of modern mentality that there should be such a thing as, as plates and an angel. And I thought it would just be an interesting investigation of how modern people deal with an, uh, an unusual and an unlikely subject such as the plates. And so I started poking around and did discover that, you know, it's just treated in many, many different ways. So one thing led to another and I just kept on writing and now Oxford is publishing it. And how does your new book contribute to the scholarship on the Church of Latter-day Saints and its history? Well, the book's structure is to follow the career of the plates from the time Joseph Smith first announced them down to the very present, down to 2023. And it shows the many guises the plates appeared in as an imposition, as a marvelous record, as a story that a young man made up. There are innumerable ways that these were used. Uh, one was at one point, there were scriptures in the Bible that were interpreted to mean the Book of Mormon, the gold plates. So they take a passage from Ezekiel and say, this passage is for seeing the gold plates. So they become an artifact of biblical history, not just the Book of Mormon history. So they've been uh, used in these many ways. And it has been my intention to lay all those out. So that's the main story. I think part of it's of what I'm trying to do is to show the continuing fascination with enchantment, with a world that is filled with marvels, and um, to show that it's very hard to crush that urge to find uh, fabulous things that speak of powers beyond our own and worlds we, we cannot see. And current scholarship is showing how the, the ending of enchantment, which was predicted many years ago, a hundred years ago by Max Weber, uh, simply has not occurred. You cannot crush that desire. And the gold plates of the Book of Mormon are one more example of how enchantment continues to feed us even down to this modern day. Thank you very much, Richard. It's been uh, fascinating having you on the Oxford comment. Yeah, um, I look forward to your new book. Okay, well, it's very pleasant to talk to you. Our next guest is Grant Hardy, Professor of History and Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Asheville, who has produced the first ever fully annotated academic edition of the Book of Mormon. His previous works include the Book of Mormon, a reader's edition, as well as understanding the Book of Mormon. Hello and welcome to the Oxford Comment. We have Grant Hardy here with us, who is the author of the first ever annotated edition of the Book of Mormon. Grant, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I am a, a professor of, of history and religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Asheville. My area of specialization in history is, is Asian history. So I've, I've written some books and articles about early China, and particularly about a Chinese historian named Sima Chen. So in addition to that part of my professional life, 
Um, I've also been interested in Mormon studies in 19th century American religion. And um, I'm at a university where they encourage faculty to follow their their interests. And so I've been able to, to do both of those. So on the Mormon side of things, the Mormon study side of things, I edited the reader's edition of the Book of Mormon that came out with the University of Illinois in 2003. And then I've also uh, published a monograph on the Book of Mormon called Understanding the Book of Mormon, sort of a general literary introduction to the book. And that was in 2010 with Oxford University Press, which is how I got connected with OUP. Um, so welcome along, Grant. This is the first ever annotated version of the Book of Mormon. Why do you think a project like this has never been undertaken before? Generally, this kind of sustained, careful attention to, to Scripture comes from believers. And, and Latter-day Saints don't use study Bibles. They've tended to ignore um, biblical scholarship for a long time, partly because of our, our lay ministry. So our, our leaders of local congregations, up to the people who direct the church as a whole, have no training in biblical languages or history or literary analysis. So what I'm doing in trying to bring those things to bear on the Book of Mormon is, is a, a fairly new approach. Um, there, there have been previous commentaries to the Book of Mormon, sometimes that have gone into multiple volumes, but those are written by Latter-day Saints for Latter-day Saints, and they tend to take a more devotional mode where they connect the scripture to the teachings of current church leaders, or they try to establish a historical context for the book somewhere in the Americas. And those endeavors are probably not of, of a lot of interest to, to many outsiders. So I'm doing, I'm trying to do, offer something new with this edition. Can you talk to us a little bit about your process in creating this edition? What questions were you hoping to answer? And who did you work with to put it all together? Well, the, the basic questions that I wanted to answer are, what exactly is the Book of Mormon? And what is its message? And how is the book, how does it work? How is it structured? How does the book work as a, as a text? And I guess another question I'm, I might try to answer is, is, is why can't Latter-day Saints be more like Jews, at least with regard to scripture study? That, that's certainly the, the model for, for many, many generations. So my process, I started by reading study Bibles, and I started with the New Oxford Annotated Bible, of course. And it really changed the way that I started to, to interact with the Bible. I really enjoyed it. And from there, I read the Jewish study Bible. So I'm reading these cover to cover, which is not often the way that people do. These are large books. And then I read uh, Robert Alter's uh, recent three-volume translation of the Hebrew Bible. And especially, I was reading the Jewish Publication Society's Etz Haim, Torah and Commentary. And as I read those, I started noting the kinds of, of observations they would make. Um, the kinds of uh, tools that they would offer to readers to help them understand that. And I thought, I, I would like to do this for the Book of Mormon. I grew up as a Latter-day Saint. I'm very familiar with the Book of Mormon, with its stories, with the language, which is a little bit odd. Um, and and so I, I wanted to apply those. So with those questions in mind and ambitions in mind, I started reading the Book of Mormon as, as careful as I could, looking for uh, puzzling phrases, trying to look for broader um, uh, literary patterns, looking at textual variants. And when I went through that, I also I also looked up every phrase in the Book of Mormon. So this is a lot because it's 270,000 words. I looked up every phrase in a searchable electronic version of the Bible, looking for intertextual connections. 
And then, of course, I tried to keep up with the increasing number of articles and books from Latter-day Saints about their own scripture. So with all of that, I put together some sample annotations for First Nephi, which is the, the first tenth of the Book of Mormon. And in 2017, I sent those uh, to Oxford. I sent them to Don Krauss, who is the executive uh, editor for Bibles at Oxford. He's been doing this for almost 40 years. He's one of the best in the business. And he gave me some, some suggestions, some criticisms, and then I refined what I was doing. And then I went to work and I wrote annotations for the entire text. So that's about 500 pages, double-spaced. And then um, I started rewriting. So I got a lot of feedback from my brilliant wife, who reads even more than I do. And uh, she wasn't happy with things. I wasn't happy with things. So we went through five complete drafts of these 500 pages. And then when I was happy with that, I sent it to Don. And he gave me a lot of criticisms and suggestions, some encouragement as well. And so I did a, a sixth revision of the whole thing. So this has gone, it's been many years and, um, and, and lots of effort, but I'm, I'm pretty pleased with how things came out. Usually study Bibles are the collaborative effort of dozens of scholars. Um, but in this case, because my approach was pretty new and because there's not a long tradition of Latter-day Saint scholarly consensus on the Book of Mormon that I could summarize and synthesize, I ended up doing it all myself. So we'll we'll see how that goes over. I'm hoping it will start new conversations. Well, it sounds like an incredible process. Um, you mentioned there about outsiders to the Church of Latter-day Saints uh, mm -hmm. coming to your annotated edition. What do you think um, your book offers new readers to the Book of Mormon, as opposed to those who are fairly familiar with the text? Well, if by new readers, you mean people who have looked at the Book of Mormon before, but not done much else other than that, and that, that may be a lot of people, I think the first thing that they'll notice is the reformatted scriptural text. So the official edition of the Book of Mormon, it's done in these little blue covers, missionaries hand them out, they're, they're pretty available. But the formatting in the official text hasn't changed much in the last hundred years. It's still formatted like traditional King James Bibles. So rather than paragraphs, you get individual verses and um, there are no poetic formatting stanzas. There are no section headings. There aren't even quotation marks. So I put all of those in. And those, I think, will help readers see at a glance who's speaking, in what context. It'll make it much easier to follow the narratives and the, the arguments, and then to see the constituent parts of the Book of Mormon and, and how they fit together. I should also say that I've, I've taught world religions before, and so I've read a number of annotated editions of other world scriptures coming from you know, Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim or, or Taoist traditions. And, and those are helpful to remind me of what it's like to be an outsider coming to a sacred text for the first time without a lot of background. And the process was similar for the individual book introductions and for the general essays. So I should tell people that the Book of Mormon is, is structured a little bit like the Bible in that there are 15 internal books that are named after different characters or writers. So each of those will have its own little book introduction. I really like the discipline of writing annotations because I only get a sentence or two. And then what I say has to be pretty evident when people look up to the text. And that genre keeps me focused on the text itself rather than giving me 
you know, space for many paragraphs, several paragraphs on my own ideas and interpretations. And, and, and I think that's what makes these annotated editions or, or study Bibles different than a lot of Bible commentaries. So I'm hoping that, that my contributions will be less about me and, and more about the text itself. So the first thing they'll notice is the, is the reformatted text. And then the annotations, of which there are several thousand, are brief observations or, or explanations that, that try to help readers see the plain meaning of the text and then go beyond that a little bit to, to um, interconnections with the narrative and, and with um, literary features and, and theological implications. And then the individual book introductions have narrative overviews, and then those are supplemented by observations about the structure and major themes in each book. And then there's a section that's specifically for new readers, like what you might look for the first time you're going through all that. And then at the end of the volume, and the, the formatting of this annotated Book of Mormon is very similar to the, the new Oxford annotated Bible. At the end of the volume will be a glossary and an index, but there will also be general essays. There are 12, a dozen uh, general essays. And while the annotations and the book introductions are focused on the text itself, the general essays can introduce readers to conversations about the text. So these are things that people have been saying for a while about where does the text come from and how is it translated and how is it connected to American history and what's the theology of the book. And so there's there's introductions at the end to that. Mark Twain has a very Twain-like quote where he refers to the Book of Mormon as chloroform in print. What in the text do you think he was responding to and how are you hoping to address that critique with this edition? You know, I understand that this will be done on audio rather than a visual thing. So, so, so our, your listeners are going to miss your air quotes about chloroform in print. But I'm, I'm afraid that, 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 that <laughs> I'm afraid that that famous, that famous quote is still relevant. Okay, the the underlying joke there is that one of these internal books is called the Book of Ether. So that's that's the connection with with chloroform. But in addition to that, the archaic repetitive language, the complicated narration can can make the book a, a bit of a slog um, to get through. And I haven't I haven't updated the canonical language. So so the book will still sound quaint and 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 a little bit awkward. It's pretty repetitive. It still has all those King James versions, these and thous and the and the grammatical did go and rebelleth and those sorts of things. Um, but the reformatting that I've done will add some white space into the text and it will move the, the narrative along. Um, it can also be confusing that um, several major characters have the same name. So I've added um, subscripted numerals to the names in the, in the section headings so that you can kind of keep all of that straight. So I'm hoping that the experience for modern readers will be better than the one that Mark Twain had. Actually, I can I can tell you when when Mark Twain read this book, he first saw it in these very dense, long paragraphs. Sometimes the paragraphs went on for more than a page, and the reason is because uh, when the text was dictated, it was dictated without punctuation, without paragraphing, and those were put in by the non-Mormon typesetter for the 1830 edition, and. He actually did a pretty good job with the punctuation, having just reading it through the first time, but he really had no idea how the narrative was structured. So he put it into paragraphs 
But every time he came to the phrase, it came to pass, he started a new paragraph. And it's it's really awkward. When Twain looked at it, he saw it, and it came to pass, it came to pass, it came to pass, sort of all through. It's hard to unsee once you do that. I think Twain said without, and it came to pass, the Book of Mormon would have been a pamphlet. So so I think that my modern style thematic paragraphs are gonna make it much easier uh, to, to, to get through. In, in my experience with study Bibles, it can be really helpful to look back and forth between the main text and the and the annotations. It sort of gives you things to look for, gives you things to notice, helps keep you focused on what's going on. And I would like to replicate that experience for readers of the Book of Mormon. Um, it's a little bit when I listen to Bach cantatas, and I do so with Alfred Durer's majestic commentary at hand. Um, that's also published by OUB. It's a huge volume, but it's just it just gives you so much to listen for and and to note, and it and it really tunes people into the richness of what's what's going on. Reading the Book of Mormon will still be harder than listening to Bach cantatas, but we'll see how it goes. You've made the decision with this text to accept large parts of mainstream biblical scholarship, even when it runs contrary to Latter-day Saints interpretations. What motivated you with that decision? Part of my motivation was that I wanted to bring Latter-day Saints into conversation with mainstream mainstream scholarship in general, whether that be history or literature or, or religious studies. Um, Latter-day Saints have long been sensitive to outside criticisms, and one response to academic findings or, or perspectives that challenge traditional interpretations is just to ignore them. So that might be things like uh, multiple authorship for the book of Isaiah, or the documentary hypothesis, or historical anachronisms, or the lack of direct archaeological evidence for Israelites in the New World. And I, I understand that, that impulse to sort of withdraw into our own bubble, but that's going to cut off conversations that might be useful and helpful and, and frankly exciting conversations where Latter-day Saints could learn more about what biblical scholars have discovered in the last hundred years or so. Um, and, and also non-Mormon scholars might benefit from being able to take the Book of Mormon a little more seriously as an example of modern scriptural production or religious creativity or a, a revelatory process, however people may define that or even responses to the Bible. So church members often claim that the Book of Mormon is like the Bible, and it is like the Bible in, in lots of ways, particularly when it's compared with the Deuteronomistic history, which is a term that not a lot of Latter-day Saints will understand, but the, that's the, the narrative historical portions of the Bible from Joshua to Second Kings that have a lot in common with each other and that are very much connected to Deuteronomy and the perspective in that particular book. So lots of similarities, but there are also a lot of ways in which the Book of Mormon is not similar to the Bible, and those are significant as well. So whereas the Bible was written by a number of people over, over the course of a thousand years, the Book of Mormon also claims to have been written by numerous people over, over a historical period. But the Book of Mormon is structured, the way it presents itself, is it's structured as a narrative that's overseen by just three major narrators, the people named Nephi and Mormon and Moroni, which means that the whole Book of Mormon is seen through the lens of these characters. And so it's a more integrated, um, more coherent volume than the Bible, which is which is basically a library. The Book of Mormon is sort of like if, if Paul 
had edited the Gospels and his own letters and put them all together from, from one point of view. So I try to point out differences as well as, as similarities. And then also in the annotations, in the essays, I point out the strengths of the Mormon scripture, which I think are considerable, but I don't shy away from noting problems or weaknesses either. I, I try to model a, a type of sympathetic but honest style of, of reading. And I and I try to read the Book of Mormon in the way, I guess this is this is one of those um golden rule kind of things, is I, I try to read the Book of Mormon in ways that I appreciate people from other religious traditions introducing their scriptures to me. So I, I mean, it, it goes both ways. And how does this new edition contribute to the larger body of scholarship on the Book of Mormon and the Church of Latter-day Saints? Most of the observations that I make in the annotations are new. And then the, the Book of Mormon has rarely been read with the level of attention to detail, including literary features and, and uh, intertextuality with the Bible. These are the kinds of things I keep talking about. Um, in general, Latter-day Saints have little idea of how the Book of Mormon actually connects with and responds to the Bible because we don't draw on, on mainstream biblical scholarship in Sunday school or even in religion classes at, at Brigham Young University, at our, our, our church uh, university. So, for example, it's pretty obvious to newcomers to the Book of Mormon that the text is filled with biblical expressions. And uh, you might think that the, the task of identifying those borrowed phrases would have been done long ago, sort of like um, the New Testament's allusions to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Bible, have been cataloged and annotated and commented on for a long time. But, but it hasn't happened. Part of the reason it hasn't happened is because the Book of Mormon all the way through, even though much of it or most of it is set before the Christian era, it uses New Testament phrases, which Latter-day Saints have been a little bit embarrassed about. But my perspective is this is what the book is. This is how it's structured. Um, the traditional, you know, the 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 faithful uh, idea of the Book of Mormon is it's a it's a modern translation of an ancient text, and that seems to be, if you take it as a translation, this this New Testament language is something that's all the way through. But to get back to my my point, even though it's been there, people haven't really cataloged it. So in this annotated Book of Mormon that's published by Oxford, this will have the first comprehensive carefully scrutinized list of biblical quotations and allusions and verbal parallels um, published actually ever. There are about 1,800 of these entries. So that's one way that I hope that this will push the scholarship forward. Also, Latter-day Saints often approach their scripture as a collection of stories, um, illustrative stories, didactic stories, and doctrinal statements. So they look for favorite passages and for proof texts. Um, without often considering the larger context of the narrative or literary developments. And in this annotated edition, in the book introductions, I take a broader overview, a more comprehensive perspective, trying to show how the story is put together in a larger way. It's something like the Bible Project videos that some people might have seen. That hasn't been done before. And then also the general essays, a few of the general essays take up some topics that haven't been addressed previously. So those include things like how the Book of Mormon compares to other world scriptures or lived religion in the Book of Mormon. I think I probably take a more comprehensive view of the theology of the Book of Mormon than, than you would generally find in these contexts. 
or in earlier publications by Latter-day Saints. Thank you very much, Grant. That was um, absolutely fascinating. And I'm really looking forward to the first annotated edition of the Book of Mormon um, being published. Um, yes, thank you for coming on the Oxford Comment. It's, 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 a, it's a pleasure to speak with you, Jack. And I, I, I think that the Book of Mormon is a more interesting text than many people assume. And so I'm hoping that this annotated edition will give rise to new conversations and insights both with outsiders, but also with Latter-day Saints themselves. So it's been a privilege to be able to come and, and talk about this. I'm, I'm very excited about finally seeing this project come to fruition, and especially having it published with, with, with Oxford that has done so much for over a century with study Bibles. Thank you very much. Um, we're delighted to be publishing you too. We want to once again thank our guests, Richard Lyman Bushman and Grant Hardy, for speaking with us about their scholarship regarding The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog for a recommended reading list exploring just a few of the ideas discussed today. New episodes of the Oxford Comment premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow Oxford Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to the Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google and Spotify. Finally, we of course want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 86 was produced by Stephen Philippi and Sarah Butcher. This is Jack Dugan. Thank you for listening. <laughs>